Blackburn, Heritage Baptist Church in Shreveport, Louisiana. He's going to come give us a biographical sketch of this great man of God, John Chrysostom. Pastor Earl. Before I begin, I would like to make a disclaimer, which you were supposed to do. I was not, uh, I did not volunteer for this. Someone else was supposed to be speaking this morning, but due to providential circumstances, I was not able. And I received this email from the chairman of the GA planning committee, and where is he? (laughs) He's hiding, I'm sure. Informing me that I had been chosen to bring a study, historical biographical sketch of John Chrysostom at the GA. I said, well, why just not have them to read the book? And they said, no, we want you to do it. And I said, well, at least you're consistent with our theology. No free willism here, right? (laughs) I wasn't even given the opportunity to say yay or nay. It was... I'm going to do it. So I do come with trepidation because I'm going to, I've been assigned the task of covering the life and ministry of a man that spanned 54 years into now 55 minutes. And so I'm, it, it, it will be a brief historical sketch of this wonderful great servant of God, John Chrysostom, Golden mouth, mighty preacher of the word. Golden mouth, what a seemingly ostentatious name to identify one of the Greek fathers of the early church. He had no part in shaping the historical, Trinitarian, or Christological controversies of his day. He played no role in the preceding time-honored ecumenical church councils before his installation as bishop. He had nothing to do with Nicaea in 325 or Constantinople in 381. His forced bishopric of Constantinople lasted just under six years, from 398 to 404. And his tenure there was fraught with political intrigue, with petty envying and intense internal strife. He had no desire whatsoever for politics. He had no ambition for ecclesiastical advancement. He preferred to live the simple life of an aesthetic and had no cravings for fame, riches, or luxuries that came with life in the metropolitan cities of his day. Twice, twice he was deposed and banished contrary to canonical law. Betrayed, sick, exhausted, He died in exile far away from his home in present-day Georgia in 407. Why then is he recognized by both the eastern and western branches of Christianity as one of the doctors of the church? He is especially regarded such by the east, rivaling only the Cappadocian fathers of Basil the Great or Gregory of Nicaea or Gregory Nazianzus. What made him so esteemed and revered? Why is it that today he is known in two of the three branches of Christianity as St. Chrysostom of Byzantium? 
Why was it that caused the great Protestant reformer of Geneva, John Calvin, so, who, to, who esteemed him so highly, so as to publish a book of his selected homilies? If you look at the life of Calvin, outside of Calvin's writings in all of Geneva, the only thing that was published were these sermons by Chrysostom. Why is it that in every book on church history, you find a section, though usually it's a brief section, devoted to a study of ancient history concerning John Chrysostom. These are interesting questions indeed. Golden Mouth was neither the birth name nor the ecclesiastical name given during John's life or ministry. He was simply named John, and no doubt would have preferred it to remain that way. However, because of his golden eloquence in the pulpit, Empowered by a mighty, spirit-anointed unction and the preaching of the Word of God, his renown enthusiastically lives on. Thus, sixth-century churchmen begin regularly referring to him as Chrysostomus, Greek for golden mouth. Chrysostom is the English form of it. This name has been appended to John of Antioch ever since. Throughout history, the names of John and Chrysostom have been used interchangeably in order to refer to the one and same person. During the study this morning, I will use more the name John. Occasionally, I will use the name Chrysostom. What were the times of the man in which he lived? Each person's picture throughout history is framed by the setting in which he lived. Remove the providential weavings of a person's life from the final tapestry of his existence, and the scene will appear colorless. John is no exception. And before we can really understand or even study this man and his life and appreciate him, we must consider the times in which we live. Now, again, for brevity's sake, I will not go into an exhaustive detail of the times in which he lived. But let me suffice it to say five or six things that will set the stage for all of this. The first of these was the growth of Christianity. Christianity began to grow rapidly. Along with that growth, in in the midst of competing religions of all sorts, there were many world-changing events. Christianity grew, persecution arose. Now, one thing that we need to understand, and so often it's easy for us, if we don't consider the times to think that persecution was absolutely widespread throughout the Roman Empire, which it was not. There would be periods of time in which there would be intense persecution, and sometimes rather than it being over the entire empire, it was spotted. There would be intense persecution here, but peace there. Persecution here, peace there. But we find that Gallerus in three, uh, 287 intensified this persecution against Christianity. I love Tertullian in so many of his ways. I don't agree with his Montanism, but he wrote, and I like what he said. He said to the, to the emperors of his day, he said, You may kill us, but you will not destroy us. The blood of the martyrs, and you've heard this famous saying, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the more they killed, the more God sovereignly raised up people 
who would confess the name of Christ and take their rank, place in the ranks of the redeemed and magnify Christ. But in 303-304, the great persecution began under Diocletian. And that continued, and it was pretty widespread throughout the empire. Churches were confiscated, turned into shops. Many Christians were killed. Many had their businesses taken away from them if they were not killed. Christianity became a villain in the Roman Empire. But we find that in 312, Constantine defeated his enemy at the Battle of Milvinian Bridge and became the sole emperor of the empire. Constantine became a Christian. I'm not going to get into whether he was actually a Christian or not. I think probably he was. But at least he was favorably inclined toward Christianity. We find that in 313, he met with Licinius, the, the, the co-emperor, the co-Augustus of the East in Milan, and they issued the Edict of Milan. It did not make Christianity the state religion, but at least it did not make Christianity an outlaw. It gave freedom of religion. And so it's in that setting then that as Christianity is free at last in some senses, that there begin to be controversies within the church. I think a good dose of persecution would help us today, help purify us in a lot of ways. But the controversy that arose was that of Arianism, or Arius and his followers in Alexandria began to teach that Christ was not of the same substance as God the Father. He was a similar of similar substance. Constantine, wanting to unite the empire, called the Council of Nicaea in 325. Wonderful, wonderful council. And they issued what is known as the Nicaean Creed. But that did not settle the controversy of the Trinity, nor the controversies surrounding Christ, the whole Christological debate. Semi-Arians continued. And then by 360, there was a more radical group of them, known as the Anomians, as we would anglicize it. And they were more radical than the Arians. They would play a great part in John Chrysostom's life. And these Anomians said that Christ wasn't of a similar substance as God, that he was totally dissimilar from God. And they thought that Christian God was so simple to understand that anyone... Anyone, even not a Christian, could understand God. John would tackle these men face-to-face, head-on, and he would win the day. And so that was there. Not only that, but after Constantine became a Christian, or professed to be a Christian, and showed favor toward Christianity, something more dangerous and more subtle than Arianism came into the church. And it's what I would call a fashionable Christianity. When I left California and went to Shreveport, one of the things that was obvious in the Bible Belt, which is about 1,800 miles wide and about eighth of an inch deep, (laughs) you know, everybody is saved. Brother Kirk Winton came and visited with us one time, and we were driving down a street, and a man was mowing the yard. And I said, look, brother, that man is saved. He said, he is I said, yes. He said, do you know him? I said, no. He said, well, how do you know he's saved? I said, 
brother not only is he saved, but his brother and his aunt's uncle's cousin third time, three times removed. Everybody's saved down here. And then he finally realized I was jesting, of course. But fashionable Christianity came into the church. It became popular to be a Christian. And in many ways, Christianity became a cultural matter rather than a conversion matter. And whether we realize it or not, that's prevalent today, isn't it? Many will say, you ask them, are you a Christian? Oh, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not a Hindu. This is a Christian nation, right? I'm a Christian. Well, John faced this matter of a cultural, of a fashionable Christianity. And I can tell you, it is dangerous. And I agree with Spurgeon who said that if we love the church, if you love the church, guard well the door to its entrance. That was not the case in John's day. Of course, as you know, these things began to shape and form matters. One other thing that I need to bring out before we look at this, and I'm not talking in an absolute sense, but it is a relative matter, that there was a competition among the cities of the day. Of course, we often think of Roman Catholicism. But what we need to understand is that there were two great cities that were competing with each other. Now, after Constantine became emperor, he moved the capital from Rome to what we know today is Istanbul, but he named it, then it was called Constantinople. There would be a rivalry here between Constantinople and Rome over the promise of these seas. But there are two other cities that would come into play here. And it wouldn't be because of geography, but it would be over the matter of hermeneutics. How do you interpret scripture? And these two cities, this tale of two cities, were the cities of Alexandria and Egypt. And of course, Antioch on the Orontes. And we find that Alexandria championed what would be known as the allegorical or metaphorical interpretation. Now, it wasn't just confined there. It was scattered throughout the empire in Christianity. How do you interpret the Bible? And, of course, the Antiochians, and I love these guys, though they would later on produce controversies of their own. They championed the literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of Scripture. So there are rivalries here, but among cities, Rome and Constantinople, Alexandria, and Antioch. And of course, the Antiochians prided themselves in being the place from which Christianity derived its name. Remember in Acts 11.26, they were first called Christians where? In Antioch. And so it is in the city of Antioch that John is born. Historians debate the exact year of his birth, but from his sermons, from his writings, probably he was born in the year four, four, uh, 349. And John was born in Antioch. Little is known of his father. More is known of his mother, who was a godly woman. And she was left as a widow very early on. He 
was so he lived in a family that was socially respected, though it was a middle class family. Though they were not wealthy, they were financially stable. He could claim good Antiochian heritage. However, Kelly suggests that though he was of Antiochian heritage, he probably had Latin mixed in with him because his father's name, Segundus, despite its Greek spelling, was definitely Latin. He grew up. His mother sacrificed to make sure that he had a good education. And his education would be part of what we would know today as a classical education. And most of what we know of his education is inevitably conjectural. But since Antioch was the famous center of Christianity, it was also the famous center of education. And we may be certain that he received the standard classical education of his day. It was probably in three stages. His elementary education from the ages of 6 through 10, his primary or his uh, grammatical education, ages 11 through 14, and his rhetorical education, ages 15 through 18. And the final stage, we're positive, was under the primary tutelage of one of the last and perhaps the most distinguished pagan professor and rhetorician, a man named Labinius. Labinius had taught Julian the apostate, and I don't want to get into all of that. You can read all about this later. But we find that he received this excellent education, and John reveled and excelled in rhetoric. It came naturally to him. So much so that he caught the special attention of his famous instructor. And as Labinius lay dying, his associates asked him who should succeed him to the chair of rhetoric. And Labinius replied, it ought to have been John had not the Christians stolen him from us. And so God here in his own providential and secret dealings, is preparing a servant, a man with great, a great mind, rhetorical skills, but a man who nevertheless would come to Christ. When was John converted? Well, we don't know exactly. When he came to saving faith, it's conjectural. But his starstruck biographer of the time, Palladius, reminds us that John's graduation from the academy, quote, coincided with the radical change in his whole mental attitude. He fell in love, as Palladius says, with sacred studies. In other words, he became absorbed in the scriptures. Somewhere in the course of his philosophical and rhetorical studies, he became disillusioned and saw the emptiness of the best that man could offer. And we're living in a philosophical day, and I do not disdain the right philosophy. But he saw that human philosophy could not answer the real questions of life. It is thought that Paul's warning of Colossians 2.8, where he says to beware uh, of empty philosophies or pagan philosophies, had significant influence upon John. Although there's no substantial proof of it in his sermons in Colossians, there's a gap there. 
But when you look at the preceding sermon and the one that comes after it, you find that he makes mention to his sermon in Colossians 2.8. And I believe, and most would agree with me, that it was this that led him to faith in Christ. As he began to see the emptiness of philosophy, as he absorbed himself in Scripture, the Spirit of God led him to repentance and faith in Christ. And so thus begins the journey. He was baptized by immersion, according to the standards of the Greek Orthodox Church. And it was interesting, and as I've studied church history, I'm not a church historian, there are those who are here. But it is interesting, for the first two and a half, three centuries of Christianity, baptism was usually, almost always, performed on Easter. If you were converted in May, you wouldn't be baptized at least for two years after your conversion. You would go through catechesis, you would go through studies of understanding who Christ is, understanding Christianity. Quite contrary to the modern philosophy today of walk them down the aisle and, and dunk them in the tub and shoot cannon confetti out of the, uh, out of the baptistry as they come up out of the water. Christians who profess or people who profess Christ in that day were tested and they were proven. And so in the year 368 on Easter Sunday, John was baptized and brought into the church. Much religious and political turmoil was, turmoil was going on. John busied himself. John, at this time, heart on fire. Heart hungering for Christ. Wanted to go and become a monk. He wanted to live the ascetic life. Oftentimes we think of the monastery, at least today we do, but in those days it was not all so bad. Most of those that became ascetics and those who became monks did so not in order to gain favor with God, but they did so that they might draw closer to the Lord and give themselves to an intense study and reading of the scriptures and prayer. I think it's I think it's contrary to the scriptures, but at least this was John's heart. And for the next seven years, he argued with his mother. His mother did not want him to go into a commune or into a community. He compromised with her. He lived at home to a degree this way, eating meagerly, seeking to spend every moment of his time reading scripture, hiding the word of God in his heart. Finally, he, his mother relented. He still gave respect to his mother, and he moved into a community. It became too noisy. He was there for four years. He became too noisy. And then he went high into those mountains and into the caves and spent the next three years not just seeking God, but his endeavor, his desire was to memorize the word, the entire word of God. Scholars speculate and debate, but there's a good probability he did memorize at least all the New Testament. And, of course, it wasn't in English. He was memorizing it from the Greek text. Finally, after seven years of this ascetic life, his health broke. He was brought back to Antioch. He came. He 
began to do menial tasks. He did the undesirable jobs. And we're living in a day where we have young men who graduate from seminary and they're wanting the, the rock star jobs. They're wanting the big churches. They're wanting all of the fame and, and all the pomp and all the glory that comes with large churches. John busied himself with the menial task, laboring there, serving the Bishop of Antioch Miletus in any way possible. But as the Proverbs tells us, a man's gifts makes room for him. And it became obvious that the hand of God was upon John. He first was allowed to read the scriptures in the divine liturgy, as they would call it, in the East, in the worship. But he would read the scriptures with such an unction upon him that they soon began giving him opportunities to teach or expound a little upon the scriptures. Well, as you know, the rest is history. In the opening week of 386, Miletus had died, Flavian had become bishop, Flavian ordained John into the ministry as a presbyter, or as John would call it, into the priesthood. He was given, strangely enough, the most famous church in Antioch. And when Bishop Flavian was away, John would preach in the bishop's cathedral. And his preaching was wonderfully owned of God. And we'll talk more about this later, but the thing that gave him such unction and power and blessing in his preaching was that he was a simple, plain style expositor of the Word of God. He would start with chapter 1, verse 1, and simply expound through books. He gained the attention of all. People thronged to hear him preach. It wasn't because he was a good-looking guy like some of you out here. It wasn't because he was quick-witted. But there was something attractive about John's ministry. Very rarely did he ever refer to himself. He constantly gave himself to the opening up of the Word of God. And he said, I want to make sure that the one who makes bread, I want to make sure that the one who plows the field, I want to make sure the mother that takes care of her children and nurses them, that these can understand the Word of God. And he labored intensely to make this happen, to bring this about. Well, let me just say one other thing before we move further in this line of thinking. Perhaps his most famous preaching and the thing that would catch the attention of the emperor and the entire empire is that the city of Antioch, which was a prestigious city at this particular time, had a major riot. It came about because the praetorian had come into the city and announced that the emperor at that particular juncture was Theodosius the Great, was levying a tax on Antioch. The, the city was not pleased with that. They didn't like taxes that day any more than we like taxes today. And a major riot broke out. I mean, it affected the whole city. 
And the, the sum of it is that they broke into the Praetorian's palace, and there were the statues of Theodosius I, or Theodosius the Great, his deceased wife, Flacilla, his Theodosius' father, Count John, and we'll find Count John, a couple of Count Johns in his life. And then the two sons of Theodosius, Arcadius and Onarius. And the people took these statues out after they had beat them and mangled them, and they carried them out of the Praetorian's house and were carried, carrying them through the streets and mocking the emperor. Flavia knew judgment was about to come. Flavian then, 80 years of age, embarks on a secret mission to Constantinople. He was going to appeal to Theodosius to have mercy upon the city of Antioch, because just a year or so before, he almost, almost annihilated the entire city of Thessalonica. John is left. The imperial army is marching toward Antioch. John knows the wrath of the king is coming. He mounts into not the bishop's chair, where the bishop would ordinarily preach in his cathedral, but he mounts to the ambo, or what we would call a pulpit, which was in the center of the cathedral. And he preaches 21 sermons. They're entitled On the Statues. And they are marvelous. In the English, I'm sure that if you read them in the Greek, you would see the the marvel of his wisdom as he directs the people. He calls them. He, he tells them, you have sinned not just against the emperor, and you shouldn't just fear the wrath of the emperor, but you have sinned against God and all this pillaging and all the wickedness that you have done. And the way he addresses the people, simply and plainly, not mincing words, and he preaches these 21 sermons over a period of about six weeks that literally brought the city to repentance. Flavian was successful in turning away the anger of Theodosius. But in so doing all of this, John catches the attention of the imperial court. What are they going to do? Nectarius, the bishop of Constantinople, dies. They need a new bishop. Who are they going to choose? Several Names were thrown out. Lobbyists set up court at the imperial palace, lobbying for this person or the next. But in the providence of God, the leader of the imperial army, when he came into Antioch to quell and squelch the riots that were brought about by the statues being disfigured and so forth, had gone to hear John preach. And this man was a Christian, and he was impressed with the mastery of the Word of God. And so now that Nectarius, the bishop, has died, Constantinople needs a new bishop. Lobbyists have set up their booths. They're putting forth this person or this person. This imperial general who had now risen in the ranks goes to the king and he says, I can tell you where you can find a real man of God. He's not here. He's not in Alexandria. He is in Antioch. 
The short of it was that without John's knowledge, without John's consent, the emperor chose him to be the next bishop of Constantinople. I do need to make uh, a note here that on February 26th, John was set forth and given the title of Bishop of Constantinople. Now, oftentimes you'll read in church history he's called Archbishop or Patriarch, and that is not the case at all. He was simply the bishop. It was not until the Council of Chalcedon in 451 that the See of Constantinople was afforded the title of Patriarch. And so do not make the mistake of referring to John as the Patriarch of Constantinople. He was simply the twelfth bishop. Well, how were they going to get him there? I mean, he didn't even know he'd been elected bishop. Kind of like me not knowing that I had been chosen to bring this address. How were they going to get him there? I mean, they, and, and in spite of what we think and often think of these emperors who had, they had no constraints whatsoever, their word was law. The, the emperors did fear the people, and the people loved John. And again, it wasn't because he was handsome, he was strong and muscular, he was the, the hulk, the hunk or whatever. He was a very small, diminutive man, balding, like some of us. Uh, you see the Greek icons of him, and he's not a very handsome fella. But there was something about it that made him attractive. And it was the Word of God, and the people loved that. The simple people especially, the common people especially. So how were they going to get him out of Antioch to Constantinople without another riot? And so political intrigue, all sorts of things come into play. John was invited to go to one of the shrines of the martyrs. He literally was captured. He was put in a coach, traveled for 12 days. He was informed once he was put in the coach that he had been chosen as the next bishop of Constantinople, and for the next 12 days he was under captivity and taken to Constantinople. Now, John would later in his own letters write about this and talk about the struggles of his own heart, and this would play into some of the things I'm going to close with later. What am I going to do? For 12 years he had labored in Antioch, where he expounded so many books of the New Testament, The people loved him. He would have been content to live and die there the rest of his life. But now, against his will, he is captured. He is made the bishop of Constantinople, the second prestigious, most prominent see in the the Roman Empire. He resigns himself to God's providence. And brethren... There's so many times when there are things happening in our own lives, we don't understand. We need to resign ourselves to God's sovereign providence. Our Father knows what's best. So he comes, he is consecrated as bishop. He takes his place there, 
And he has, at that time, at least 28 bishops under his widespread authority and almost 10,000, 10,000 presbyters under his oversight. He had a church that was in disarray. The city was filled with fashionable Christians. There was a mismanagement of money at every turn. The church was almost bankrupt. The empire was almost bankrupt. He came into Constantinople, and what he found was a mess. What we'll find with John, as you study and read his life, is that, first of all, he was a Christian. Secondly, he was a preacher. But thirdly, he was a reformer way before his time. And John goes into the city. He assumes the chair. He assumes the position as bishop of this great metropolitan city, the place where the emperor resides. And man, he begins to set the house in order. And he looks around and he sees these lazy pastors. He interviews every one of those presbyters under his authority. He questions them. He examines them. He doesn't take his position lightly. And those that he believed to be hirelings, those that were lazy and slothful, he relegated to menial tasks of keeping records and so on and so forth. But those that he believed to be men of God, he put in strategic churches and commanded them to preach the word of God. Thank God for someone like that. Well, that's not going to pour the oil of gladness on a lot of people's heads, right? I mean, they wanted, they wanted a bishop that they thought they could control. They wanted a bishop that was distinctly Nicene. They wanted a bishop that was, without any equivocation, a Trinitarian. They wanted a bishop that would confront the Anomians, the, the more radical Arians of the day. They wanted a bishop that would give them status throughout the empire. But they did not want a reformer. And so he begins to clean house with the clergy, so-called. And the next thing that he did, and I, I can't help but when I read about him and study him, I see humor here. And of course, the, the matter of celibacy was gaining great foothold in Christianity. And a lot of these presbyters would hire what they called spiritual sisters to come into their homes and tend their house and cook their meals and so forth. And Chris Austin noted that these spiritual sisters became spiritual mothers quite rapidly. And that was well noted by the number of orphans that were running the streets of Constantinople. And man, he calls his clergy together. And he warns them, he said, this will cease. He calls all of these women that have become pregnant by, unmarried women that have become pregnant by the priest. And he demanded these priests to support them, to take care of these children, so on and so forth. Well, <clears throat> again, this is not going to gain him favor with the court. Arcadius, Theodosius had died. Arcadius had become emperor. Arcadius was a weak and a spineless man, and I read him, uh, read him and I study him, and I have nothing but contempt for this man. 
But he married a very beautiful woman, Eudoxia. She was the daughter of a Frank general. And she married him not out of love, but out of prestige. And she realized very quickly that he was not going to be a man to lead and rule in his home. And so, in essence, Eudoxia becomes the shadow emperor. She's controlling everything. And when John comes as bishop, she immediately meets with him. She butters up to him. She has him to catechize her. Their first son is born. Later on, John would baptize this child. And she loved John. But... You always watch out for those who butter up to you. We find that very shortly after coming into Constantinople, John has trouble. His reforms bring trouble. The pastors, the clergy, the presbyters under his bishopric begin to resent the fact that he had made them, can you believe this, made them, do holy things. The churches and the chapels throughout the whole region of Constantinople, many of them were empty. He said there's people working in, in the villages and people working in the farms and people working in the shops. And he made these lazy preachers open up the chapels and they had services every night. Very simple services. They would sing a psalm. Read scripture, have a prayer, a simple exhortation, close with a psalm, a benediction, and they went home. And the ministers, the pastors, the presbyters under him resented that. And they resented their spiritual sisters being taken away from them. But then he gets in trouble. And he gets in trouble with this beautiful, alluring, but unprincipled and wicked empress, Eudoxia. Many factors worked against the success of this principled exegete and bishop. The main one really was the fact that the city was Christian in name only and not in essence. That's one of the things that we Baptists have fought for through the centuries, isn't it? a regenerate church membership. But he found that the church primarily was unregenerate. And so we find that as he preaches against these things, the imperial court is not pleased. And of course, Eudoxia, the imperious, tempestuous, probably immoral wife of Arcadius the emperor, really began to not like John. It was rumored that Eudoxia had liaisons with a courtier named Count John, and she would be one who would be the major actor in this traumatic drama of John's ministry at Constantinople. J.N.D. Kelly claims that though she was an enthusiastic and deeply superstitious Christian, one can only wonder. She had a respect, she had a fear for John, but on the other hand, she couldn't stand his plain and direct preaching. John's first, first sense, Eudoxia's displeasure, when he defended one of the imperial 
courtiers, the chamberlain, a man named Euphropius. But then John, and sometimes we preachers do this, do we not? We get in the pulpit, and man, we are frustrated, right? We're frustrated at the people. They should be doing this. They should be better than what they are. And he could not stand the fashionable women of his day. And he began this, pre- uh, this practice of preaching, damaging, and frequently mentioning the excesses of women, especially expensive and immodest dress, excessive jewelry, elaborate hair arrangements, usually referencing them to Jezebel and Herodias. Now, John was not a woman hater. Don't, don't think he was a chauvinist or a misogynist. Nor did he think that women should look frumpy. But as a child, his beautiful yet godly mother had modeled before him the example of a Christian woman. She wasn't stride with the styles of, his, of her day. Nevertheless, she was modest, humble, and never fleshly. As a result... As, as a result, he thought all Christian women should be this way. Believing that he had the exegetical authority of 1 Timothy 2.9 and 1 Peter 3-4, John persisted in preaching on the fashionable excesses of women in their dress. Many thought John's insinuations were subtly directed toward the emperor Eudoxia. And so did Eudoxia, as history confirms. Our first clash with his first clash with the empress became a spike in John's ecclesiastical coffin. And the smaller forum of Constantinople had the there were two forums, the larger forum and the smaller forum had the smaller forum was right across the street from the Hagia Sophia, the Holy Wisdom Church. And the hippodrome where they had horse racing, often on Sundays, and I mean man. I don't know that John fully understand the con- understood the concept of the Sabbath, but I can tell you he hammered these people for going to horse races and games and theaters on Sunday rather than being at the house of God and worshiping. And so Eudoxia, who was vain, had raised a platform right there in between the Hippodrome and the Holy Wisdom Church. She was always wanting attention and praise, always wanting to be the prima donna. And thus she had a towering silver statue of herself erected on that platform. And the shadow of it loomed over the entrance of the church where John was preaching. Furthermore, she had it put in place on a Sunday morning during divine worship. And this event was not done quietly, but carried out with all the festivities of a pagan festival. The music, the singing, the roaring applause could be heard in the church. And it was so loud at times that it drowned out John's preaching. And little John was not going to put up with this. Little John became big bad John. <laughs> Instead of sending out a deacon, courteously asking for the celebration to be postponed until the divine worship of God was completed, John lost his temper, and man, he began to pointedly address the sinful occasion. He scathingly denounced the organizers, especially for the timing of it, insisted the event was an outrage and an insult to the church of Jesus Christ, 
and regarded it as a disgrace to an empress who called herself Christian. And you know what? I don't find any fault with John. Matter of fact, my heart resonated with him. Why were the celebrants not in the house of God adoring the King of Heaven instead of being in the form of men exalting the empress? John's anger was understandable to those who loved Christ above all others, but not to the carnal-minded, especially those of the imperial household. Eudoxia, so vainly self-centered and self-righteous, was infuriated. News of her outrage came to John secretly. Cryptic messages from courtiers. John later explains in his sermons, and I've chuckled and laughed many times in reading some of his sermons, and he says, once again Herodias is dancing and seeks the head of John. And in another he said, in the evening she calls me the 13th apostle. Today she branded me a Judas. In a sermon preached in early May 403, he departed from his standard practice of exposition and vehemently denounced the weakness conventionally attributed to women. Several hearers connected the dots to Eudoxia. The imperial court was severely displeased, and the empress told Arcadius she would no longer tolerate John in his preaching. And one of the things were that Eudoxia had three women that were her counselors. They were old women. And thank God for old women. But these women wanted to be young women. And they would put on these wigs, and as John said, they would paste their face. Put all this paste, all makeup on their faces, jewelry. And one, one day the empress and the court, Arcadius, would only attend on special occasions. But they came traipsing into the Holy Wisdom Church, and John preached. And man, he blasted these women for putting on their, their fake hair and their paste, and trying to be young when beauty had long faded. Well, I can tell you, he was not gaining points with, with the court. Well, so many things opposed John upon his arrival as bishop there in Constantinople. I'm having to hastily go through this. And so, let me just say that it was fraught with so many opponents and so much opposition. And all he wanted to do was simply worship God and preach the word of God. And yet he found the fashionable Christianity of the day to be the main proponent. Isn't it interesting? And I've thought in looking, comparing their day with our day. Churches where the worship is simple, plain, Unpretentious churches where the word of God is, is primary, where the pulpit is central, where men of God may not be flashy, but they're faithful. They may not be eloquent, but they are true to the text and they stand humbly and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Our churches are not, we're not, we have no mega churches among us, do we? We can't entertain as well as Hollywood entertains. 
We do not have the skills of the professional actors. We're not interested in that. We're interested in exalting the triune God. We're not interested in the applause of people. We're interested in the smile of heaven upon us. And brethren, let us never deviate from that. Let's stay true to that. John sets a wonderful example for us. I'm going to quickly pass a lot of things and just touch on some of the things with regard to John that I think will help us and encourage us. I want us to consider briefly two things, worship and missions. Apart from the hand of blessing of God upon John, John had another, uh, the blessing of God upon him, John had another asset in his favor, and that was the true people of God. Once again, though the courtiers, the fashionable Christians did not like him, what the emperor and the empress began to notice is that every time John preached, the imperial court had to get there early to get seats because the common people filled the church where he was going to preach. And they loved him. And he proved to be an immensely popular preacher. And the common people adored him, not for who he was, but for what he did. Now, students who read John's works are given insight into the worship of the churches under the bishop's charge of his day. John was a a liturgist, one who arranges and writes orders of worship services. And the liturgy used almost every week in Eastern Orthodox churches is ascribed to him, especially the liturgies of Eastern Christmas. And he possessed a keen sense of unity and worship between the congregation on earth and the unceasing adoration in heaven. And he said, when the minister invokes the triune God at the start of worship, quote, the Holy Spirit and angels attend him, and the whole sanctuary is thronged with heavenly power. Do we believe that? Have we lost that sense that when we gather, the triune God gathers with us? We sing angels help us to adore Him. Ye who sang the Savior's birth. John believed that. He simply put, John viewed worship on earth as simply that which was going on in heaven. In many segments of Christendom, he is known as St. John Chrys- Chrysostom, the liturgist. Following the custom of this time, no musical instruments were used in church worship. There was only the rich harmony of the congregation singing a cappella. Centuries would pass before instrumentation found its way into the church and reached the quality so often heard in churches today. Though there were traces of hymns, from the New Testament that were sung in the churches, mostly they employed the Psalms. Hymnody was still in its infancy. John incorporated the scriptural hymns of his time in the worship services, but again, Psalms were primarily sung. And I wonder, we often, in the worship wars controversy, we appeal to Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I wonder how many times... In our churches on a week, do we sing a psalm? 
Now, I'm not in favor. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not an exclusive psalmist. But how many times do we sing a psalm? How many of you know psalms found in our Trinity hymnal? We need to learn these rich and wonderful psalms. I'm off my notes. Say amen, Flash. All right. We need to sing these psalms. We need to learn these psalms. He believed that the redeemed nature delighted in singing God's praises and the benefits were support and sanctification. Each verse, he said, may impart wisdom, correct our doctrines, afford us great aid in life. He went even so far as to say that if sung with understanding, singing, quote, calls down, unquote, upon the church the grace of the Holy Spirit and transports the soul into the noble company of cherubim and seraphim near the very throne of glory. What a wonderful, glorious view of worship. When seeing God's praises, he believed the congregation was the choir. He exhorted, stand erect, do not carelessly mumble the words while the heart is roaming elsewhere. John declared singing and making melody in the heart to the Lord as a clear evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you wish to be cheerful, he says, he asked. Sing! If Christ's people sang more often, they would be cast down less often. John faced a problem in Constantinople not unlike our own or the days in between. Unfaithful church attendees. And man, he tore into them. Again, Christmas and Easter, along with the holy days, usually found the churches full. As usual, after the sacred seasons passed, attendance dropped considerably. To his amazement, the worst offenders were those who possessed the greatest amount of this world's riches. The affluent, the upper middle class and upper classes. The middle class, the poor, who had less of the world's goods, were usually the most faithful in attending worship. The problem was so grieving to John that he preached the homily with the Imperial court present, the Praetorian guard, all standing in attendance around the Imperial court. And the title of his sermon to those who had not attended the assembly, the dangers of forsaking the assembling together of yourselves. And I can tell you that that did not, that did not gain him more favor with the Imperial court. Well, other things that, again, he, he was grieved that a number found it so difficult to faithfully attend, uh, he found that they found, he found that it was difficult for people to faithfully attend the house of God and so easy to attend a sporting event or take care of personal business affairs or engage in family festivals and activities. Forsaking the, the assembly, people wander away, he says, depraving themselves by not depriving, but depraving themselves by going to meetings that are thoroughly unwholesome. No apology was made for being burdensome or vexatious, he says. He acknowledged that those who would hear him would call him guilty and say he was insolent and impudent. Many would find him annoying, but he believed that the gathering was so important. 
Furthermore, the preacher was motivated to encourage them to be faithful in their attendance. Church attendance was something that he, you find throughout his sermons, addressing them, be faithful to the means of grace. That kind of sounds like a Reformed Baptist, doesn't it? Be faithful to the means of grace. There God will bless you. There God will strengthen you. There God will meet with you. There God will enrich your soul. There you will find the presence of God. And when you leave, you will know the favor of God upon your soul. One other thing that I've got to bring out with regard to the worship is this matter of applauding the preacher. One issue that deeply grieved John in worship was the matter of applause during the preaching, which has relevance for our day. And I can tell you, going back into the Deep South, into the Bible Belt, and among the Southern Baptist churches, it's sometimes I just want to vomit. I mean, preachers are up there and they'll say something nice, and all of a sudden a congregation erupt in applause. And I thought, man, what in the world has gone on to the South with the South since I departed <laughs> and since I've returned? The congregants have developed the habit of plotting during the preaching. Over time, he realized that it was his eloquence rather than the truth of God's word that moved the people to applaud. At first, he simply let it pass. However, the more he thought about it, the more troubled he became. And as he was making a particular point on his sermon in Acts 13.42, the congregation exploded into an interrupting applause. And he was not a little nonplussed by that. The preacher stopped his exposition to address the issue by saying, quote, Before me, I only speak the sentiments of my heart. Believe me, I only speak the sentiments of my heart. If I hear your applause, if I hear your applause for my words, my human feelings for the moment are gratified. Why should I speak the truth of God's words? But afterward at home, when I think how far empty, renowned the benefits of the sermon for you were, and for me they've been wholly lost. And when I, and then I groan and weep and feel that it has all been in vain. Often have I thought of forbidding loud manifestations of applause. Let us establish a law among us today that in no, that no hearer be permitted to applaud in the midst of any person's preaching. Then he resumes his exposition of Acts 13.42. And before he could really begin his exposition, the congregation is kind of stunned as they listen to him rebuke them for applauding. And all of a sudden, the congregation overtaken by his eloquence, and to John's total shock, the congregation immediately broke into cheering applause. <laughs> John was a little, more than a little irate. What is this noise? And if you read his, read his rhetoric and his preaching, he often would use what he would call the invective. He'd ask this question. What is this I hear? What is this you say? And we'll deal with this in just a moment. And, and is this, as they're, I mean, they're cheering. The accounts are they're cheering. They're woo, you know, and applauding and all this. And he says, quote, what's 
What is this noise? He sternly asked. I've laid down a rule against this very thing, and you do not have the forbearance to even hear me. Firmly, he explains that the heathen philosophers speak without interrupting applause. The apostles preached, and nowhere is it found that noisy applause accompanied their words. Even Christ himself preached the Sermon on the Mount without applauding interruptions. If you applaud, he says, do it in the marketplace for the harpers, or in the public processions, or in the theaters. But do not do it in the church. The church is no theater. The point was effectually made. The church is not a place for entertainment. It's not a place for the applause of men. The preacher is not an entertainer, he would say. And the preaching, he says, and oh, how it resonates with us as Reformed Baptists. In the preaching, Christ is speaking. In the preaching, Christ is speaking. And the hearers should be quiet. They should resist talking to others. Quit mumbling to others, he said, while the word of God is being declared. Carefully listen and not rudely interrupt. Well, there's much more off going. I want to deal with this matter of missions because, after all, we Reformed and we Calvinists, we love missions, right? We're not baby haters. We don't, we don't wish people to go to hell. We believe in the Great Commission, right? Contrary to those who vilify us. Throughout his short, mostly tumultuous tenure in the capital, every opportunity was taken to advance the cause of Christ beyond the walls of Constantinople and into the dark domains and regions of the empire where there was little or no spiritual light. He was able to persevere and endure this dark trial, among other things, because John was kingdom-minded and most desirous for the conversion of heathen to Christ. He would talk to landowners in, in rural districts outside of the city and encourage them to build churches or chapels on their premises instead of bathhouses and shopping centers. The Phoenicians and their vile paganism were heavy upon John's heart. He sent a missionary team to preach the gospel and plant churches among them. And guided by John's vision, efforts were made to evangelize the peasants of Thrace. He raised money for missionary and evangelistic endeavors in Persia. And by the way, we should note this carefully. The presence of a small Christian community today in hostile Islamic Iran is due primarily is due primarily to John's labors. He sent a missionary delegation to evangelize and plant churches among the Goths who lived on the Lord Danube. And one Sunday, without any explanation, John brought an Orthodox Goth convert into the pulpit of the Holy Wisdom Church and had him read and explain a portion of Holy Scripture in his indigenous language. Their bishop wanted an example of the power of Christ and him crucified set before this sophisticated congregation. Can you imagine the surprise and offense those cultured Greeks who took pride in their beautiful language must have expressed to hear the word of God spoken in such a crude tone and harsh sounding language? 
When the goth finished, John mounted the pulpit and said, quote, Where are the doctrines of Plato, Pythagoras, and the great men of Athens? They have perished. Where are the doctrines of fishermen, publicans, and tent makers? Where are they? Not among the Jews and Greeks, but among the, bar- the language of barbarians, as you have heard this day. They shine clear as the sun. Scythicans and Thracians and Salmatians and Moors and those who inhabit the remotest parts of the earth have received this doctrine into their language and from it have learned true wisdom. And by the way, just to note, he so many times throughout his preaching, he would refer to Christianity as the true wisdom. And again, going from Colossians 1.8, or the true philosophy. He continues, wherever you go, you will find the names of these fishermen, namely the apostles, in every mouth. The power of the crucified has opened the way for them everywhere. He has made the ignorant wise and has given to the unlearned a greater power of speech than is possessed by the masters of the Greek language. End quote. Again, J.N.D. Kelly notes that John's great interest in promoting Christianity among barbarians and outside the borders of the empire was at that time unusual, not to say unprecedented. He had a real heart for missions. Not going to deal with the triumphs. He had several triumphs there. We talked about his toils, his sorrows, his, his betrayals, and so forth. And there were many. I got the word, John. Many, many triumphs. Let me quickly close with just a few things about his preaching. And there were seven things, I think, that really, well, let me just say this about his exile. He was exiled twice. First time he was exiled, an earthquake happened. And the imperial household was horribly shaken. And don't know for sure, but either one of the Imperial children were killed, or the Empress Eudoxia miscarried. Immediately, she being superstitious, had John called back, but he was only there for about six months, and his enemies won the day, and he was exiled. Exiled far away, and he was exiled from 404 to 407. His first place was in Armenia, and then later in Georgia. And cold, hungry, with some, I think, three imperial soldiers with him to escort him. He came to a small, poor, small village, just a few miles from his imposed destination. He went into a little wayside chapel, took off his clothes, and put on a baptismal robe, and asked the soldiers to distribute his clothes to whoever needed them. And he closed his eyes in death, and his last words were, Glory be to God. For all things. Glory be to God for all things. No murmuring, no complaining, no bitterness. Glory be to God for all things. I'm going to stop here. I don't have time to deal with his preaching, his views of preaching, and the lessons that we can learn. There are at least 15 good lessons that we can learn. I'll leave you, that with you to research and study for your own. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the saints of the past, the saints upon whose shoulders we stand this day. 
Thank you for John of Antioch. Thank you for his love for Christ. Thank you for his love for your word. And thank you for his view of worship and his view of preaching. And thank you for the triumphs, though there were many trials and betrayals. Thank you for the triumphs of the gospel through this humble servant. I pray that your blessing will be upon all of us here and make all those who are called of you to be faithful, bold, fervent servants of the word. As John, who so nobly set an example, was for us. In Jesus' name I pray.